to Sixth Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. In 2000, the Nokia 3310 debuted and went on to become one of the most successful mobile phones of all time. It was also in 2000 that the New Zealand software startup Emcom was founded. Emcom would go on to develop a successful mobile banking platform that would be used by thousands of global financial institutions and millions if not tens of millions of users. In 2011, Emcom was acquired by US-based Fortune 500 fintech company Fiserv and to this day retains an office in Auckland CBD that employs over 100 staff. In our previous 6-4 episode, we heard about Emcom's founding story, a story of scrappiness, pivots, and poor timing that eventually brought Emcom to product market fit and then on to explosive growth. This episode, we talk about that period of growth and what lessons were learned during that time. Uh, yeah, Adam Clark was one of the founders of Emcom and um, once we determined we need a CEO, I stepped into that role, but largely was uh, responsible for where we were going commercially as much as anything else. Um, well, it was an interesting phase. So we, you know, we won uh, the mobile banking um, business with ANZ in New Zealand and that gave us an opportunity to win it in Australia. And I think that was massive. So we won ANZ Australia. Uh, and and that I think was in 2006. But it, these things, these projects, it took us a year to implement them. So it's quite a long time from signing to implementation. And as we went through the implementation with ANZ Australia, it gave us the. Uh, I think that's when we started to look seriously at the US because the iPhone had come out and there was a bit of there was a bit of momentum. And, and you know, we put together a really structured plan to go into the US. I vaguely remember four phases. You might remember them, Serge or Graham, but. Uh, super deliberate execution, and then we we got up there, and you know we bumped in. I think you or Matt bumped into Wamu at a at a table, and Wamu then was like the fifth or sixth biggest bank in in the US from a retail perspective. Uh, and we won those guys, which accelerated the whole thing. But there wasn't it wasn't like there was this, um, you know, through two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. It wasn't like there was all these deals landing for us. It was still couple of deals a year and then of course the the GFC or the Great Recession hit um, as we got to the US and and that we were completely stalled for really 12 months. Um, it was late nine and then through 2010 that the velocity really took off. So when you think about the growth of MCOM, we had a really slow sort of first six years, 2006 and half, six, seven and a half of eight were, were pretty steep and then Nothing happened in 2009. 2010 was freaking crazy, and we sold in February 2011. So the vast amount of our growth came in sort of a two- or three-year period, really. Graham Ransley here. Um, yeah, I was uh, one of the founders of MCOM. One of the, um, one of the big things that I remember is um, throughout that period of time, uh, we were trying to expand the team. We were trying to expand the team in order to be able to do the work, but at the same time trying to actually do the work, and um, and it was uh, it was it was incredibly stressful. Uh, and I think that we 
in the end, we we did we had to go, we had to kind of go back to doing something that we were probably to some extent quite unfamiliar with, and that was processizing pretty much everything that we did. We had to figure out a process for bringing people on because we needed to bring on two people a week. We had to we had to figure figure out all these processes for everything, and then put them in place and actually follow them. And I guess if uh, you know if you had your time again and predict these things happening, then you would put a lot more effort in earlier uh, to actually providing some processes that you could that you could run by um, instead of instead of becoming incredibly stressed out and then. Fortunately, recognising that, that that was perhaps one of the ways that you're going to actually solve the problem. I'm Serge Van Dam. Yeah, and, and I think that was uh, p- partially. So that was partially the funding question that came up earlier. Right, we were not funded to pro- to recruit ahead of the dollars landing in our bank account because we had no funding. So that was definitely a cost of that dynamic. Um, and uh, the second thing is it's. That's part of the peril of enterprise sales. You know, we were an enterprise software company. And the problem with enterprise software is it takes you a long time to get a customer to commit, right? And you, you know, negotiations could drag on for six months or whatever. And then the day they sign, they expect you to start. You know, they sign on a Thursday. They expect you to start the project on the Monday. And, of course, we couldn't hire ahead of the curve. So it was, a, I mean, I think that's a big part of the stress that particularly Adam experienced. I'm a growth guy, so my job was just to find more banks to put in the bag. It was really uh, Adam's job. Well, Graham's job was to deliver on it, and Adam's job was to keep the whole the whole uh, car travelling together in one piece while the tyres and lights get changed, etc. So, um, you know, I suffered a lot less directly as a result. I distinctly remember the meeting in March or April of 2010, which was the one that all right we. The only chance that we've got at getting through this year is is committing to a product, a notion of a product, and building that and selling it multiple times, and talking about how we might go about doing that. And of course, it seems obvious now, but back then, how to go about that was not obvious, either just to us or to everyone. What I do think we got wrong there, although maybe by recollections, but bias here based on which seat I was in, but. I think when we carved the team up, we had 80% of our focus on the implementation and 20% in the product. There was myself, James Swan, and if I recall correctly, maybe Kelvin, Kelvin Gann. And that was a product team. But we had to fix everything, try to fix everything that, that wasn't implementation specific. And I think we got that wrong side up. And it was detoxing, right, from the, the model that we knew, which was you implement stuff for customers. I, I think the code base probably still suffers to this day from all of the shortcuts and hacks that were put in there around that time. And you, you wonder what the world would have been like had we tried it again in terms of the agility that could have been supported for many years after. Oh, 100%. I think, you know, the thing that exacerbated it um, look, if we'd funded it differently and we'd said, hey, we're going to build our product and then go to market as opposed to go to market and, and then build a product, things would have been very different. And, I'll, you know, as you guys know, I'm very much in the field of let's build a product um, and iterate that product in market rather than, rather than what we did at MCOM. But to the history we talked about before, that was just how we got there. 
the other thing is is that we didn't have this there, there was nothing like linear growth it wasn't even exponential linear growth we went from you know a couple of implementations a year to shit we just signed i don't know seven eight deals in a week uh so we kind of ran into this wall of of growth relatively speaking um and we had a team continuing to look after the SaaS product with with Fiserv, right? Which, which is ultimately where where if you look at MCOM on a longitudinal basis, that's where all the value is. I don't even know if the license stuff still exists. I know you know last time I checked with Fiserv years ago, most of it had gone away, and and so it may well have been wound up. But the but the SaaS model that still sits on on that. You know, on a variant of that code base, Bradley is just a colossal business for them. Let's zoom back in time a little bit. You talked about the four-part plan to enter the US. So, where did Fiserv appear in that plan, or how did that change what the company had to achieve? It was probably me that was most across that. So, I'll give a bit of a high-level view, and the guys can chip in. So, um, the way that we discovered Fiserv, as I said before, is the small banks all said, "Hey, you got to." You look to Fiserv, um, and the medium and the bigger banks, uh, because we're a Microsoft platform, um, said, "Hey, you should integrate with Carillion." And uh, so we spoke to Carillion, and they weren't that interested in us. John Perrin walked into our office one time, and he said, uh, "Hey, have you ever, have you ever heard of Fiserv?" And I'm like, "Well, as a matter of fact, we have. We keep hearing them all the time. We've determined that that's the partner that we need." in the US and he said oh it's cool because the guy that I used to work with just asked a favour for me and he's chief revenue officer uh, Tom Warsop um, up at Fiserv so I can get you in and so he got us in at the highest levels you know Tom was quite new he was chief revenue officer um, uh, of what Fiserv would then was about a 20,000 people organisation I think and so we got you know we got the audience um, and we pretty much had a deal with them and and so that would have been mid-2007. By the end of 2007, we were pretty close to getting a deal done with them and it went cold. Uh, we didn't really know why, um, but then they announced they'd acquired Carillion. <laughs> um, and so um, then they had to get all the Carillion guys across the line to work with us as well. And it was massive because I think if we look back now, if we'd only got the Fiserv deal done without them acquiring Carillion, it was really the small banks. And if you guys remember, it took probably three or four years for us to generate any material revenue off the SaaS platform we built for the small banks with Fiserv. It was the Carillion relationship that you know got us the revenue that came in that sustained us. Um, so then it wasn't until um, mid-2008 that we actually signed the deal for the partnership with Fiserv. Shortly after that Fiserv partnership was signed, I joined the MCOM team. What was also happening at that time was the iPhone's march towards becoming the preeminent mobile device in the USA. For a company that did such a good job of picking the adoption of banking on mobile phones ahead of its time, it's fair to say that MCOM did a poor job of getting ahead of the user experience revolution that the iPhone heralded. How is it that the judgment was so good about one? Uh, but poor on the other? And was there a difference? Was it a distraction? Was it something else? I'd be interested in perspectives on that. Uh, I can probably answer that to some extent because I, you know, I actually think we did pick up on the UX uh, demands of our customers and prospects. 
It's just that the things that had served us as a company from a DNA perspective, being good at security, being bank friendly, understanding payments, all of those things, were just not the things that were going to serve us best in the future. And uh, as a leadership team, we said, hey, we should take UX seriously and we even hired some people, etc. But it just wasn't in the DNA. And I think that the lesson to be learned for us and certainly for me uh, ever since has been just because you've got a 10, 20, 50, 100-person company, you're a small company, the DNA you've built is actually very hard to change. So um, I, I wouldn't underplay that if you're an early-stage founder or leader to think, hey, if we, if we think, you know, if the, if the boat changes or the trends in our industry change, we can pivot easily. But the DNA outlasts so many things and... Uh, to me, our failure to kind of capitalize on that change of user centricity in our prospects and customers was really a problem of how deep our natural DNA ran. And obviously, we failed a little bit as leaders. Um, so, you know, I do want to take personal accountability in that, um, as I'm sure the two gentlemen with me will as well, or the three, I guess. But um, I think the, the depth of the DNA uh, is really a significant factor there. My recollection from the time was that for those of us in product, we were still trying to pull together a relatively stable and relatively easy to implement product given the scale that we needed to achieve. And, you know, the iPhone presented, I guess, an inconvenient truth. And we didn't really have the maturity of process or the mechanisms to confront what that inconvenient truth meant for the additional work that we needed to do on top of the work that we were already trying to do. And to your point about DNA, Serge, yep, I mean, I think even if we had, right, our ability to execute and understand what that change meant and how to actually change our behavior possibly would have been limited, right, even if we'd committed ourselves to it earlier. Yeah, from where I, from where I sit, there are a couple of things. I think we came from, um, you know, when we were working with the older technology WAP, JTME, et cetera, and the flip phones. You know, we had this kind of menu-driven, what what even then was quite old sort of a user experience. Um, and it probably took us a while to figure out that the iPhone and the smartphones just created a completely different experience possibility, and that's where the market went. So there's that piece around the user experience. We, you know, it took us a long time to invest in specifics, you know, professionals in that area. Um, the other thing is that, so there's that user experience piece that we got onto later. Um, there's also the fact that we just, at a practical level, we got to the iPhone later than we should have. And I remember Stewie telling us every month, you know, we had our prioritization meetings, he was banging on, we've got to get onto this, we've got to get onto this. And I think we were so busy implementing with Fiserv, implementing with our customers, and that was what drove our priorities. And and again, because of the frugality, we didn't have the additional capacity to then say, oh, that's fine, we can invest in some forward-looking product. And what happened is that the iPhone emerged so quickly that then our customers were like, what the hell, guys, why haven't you got ahead of this? And, and that's when it really started. I mean, we kind of failed at both levels, right, because we did what we said we were going to do with our customers, but the iPhone just became massive so quickly. We hadn't built it as product, but we also hadn't got it to our customers as non-product. Yeah, Just caught flat-footed, I think. 
if I had my time again, I'd think we'd have just spent the cash reserves to put a dedicated iPhone team together and would have just got it done. But we didn't do that. What you said, Adam, about uh, putting a dedicated team on, I think I, I would endorse as a pattern to approach this stuff um, because it it frees, it, it takes that mental consideration out, out of a part of the organization that's trying to juggle a bunch. And if I recall correctly, there was still a whole lot of product messiness that we're working through through that period. And it gives a group of people an opportunity to focus and obsess solely on attacking that problem. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, Bradley. I think that, that is a repeatable pattern, even in today's world. Obviously, it's not the iPhone launching, but, you know, I'm involved in a company where, you know, we, we've mucked around with a customer's asking for an API for something, and we've just mucked around with it forever, whereas actually if we just built an API team, two or three people, dedicated, nothing else, we could have met the market need instead of missing the bus. And so... Yeah, I think as a pattern, I totally agree with that. And again, what's different these days is most of the companies do have the resources to make those calls. They're still trade-off calls. If you do that, you don't do something else. But, um, you know, if you look in hindsight, those are the things that uh, killed your business and you kind of knew it at the time. You just weren't prepared to make the decision. For those of you who were not involved in the story of MCOM, it may seem that many of the mistakes made during the journey are obvious or that the solutions seem elementary. And with the benefit of time and experience, I think it seems that way even to me now. But I think it needs to be remembered how little precedent or accessible precedent there was at the time to learn from and how many paths needed to be blazed by all those involved. It seems a good time at this point to acknowledge many of those people, where they are now and how they've helped grow the tech ecosystem in New Zealand. Let's start with our guests. Serge Van Dam is active in the SaaS ecosystem in Wellington and this year was a finalist for the New Zealand High Tech Inspiring Individual Award. He is an operating partner at Movac and holds a number of board positions including with Tour Writer, Whipster, Raygun, Common Ledger, Landlord Studio, Montu, and Kogo. Adam Clark has also been active in the ecosystem in Auckland, holding a number of board positions, but presently has joined Sir John Kerwin in co-founding mental well-being platform Mentimia, where he is currently CEO. Adam has been joined by a number of other MCOM alumni, including Fiora Al, who is Chief Product Officer, Simon Hartley, the Head of Technology, Amy Gray, VP of Customer, as well as Darren Zhu and Simon Chen in the development team, and several others. Graham Ransley has been an active investor and has taken some time to work on his boat and to catch fish, but more recently has been supporting his son Logan, who is part of the founding story of Landlord Studio. Landlord Studio is a mobile-first property management app focused on the US market. Charles Chan is the founder and CEO and was a former member of the MCOM team. Charles has been joined by other MCOM alums, including Logan Ransley as a member of the founding team, Oliver Chang, who's head of product, Nathan Kilpatrick, and Sam Mockridge in the development team. A number of the MCOM technical team have gone on to hold leadership positions here and in the USA. Carl Chaffee is currently CTO of Job Management Software Scale-Up, Tradeify. 
Tim Goodwin was formerly CTO of Portland, Oregon-based Vacasa and is now CTO at US health tech company Tiger Connect. Several of the MCOM product team have gone on to contribute to the community, especially in Auckland. Peter Jansen is head of product at Predict HQ. Murray Barton is group head of product at TSG. Levi Allen is executive GM in Zero's product team. And Anthony Marta has been a driving force behind the product management community in Auckland and the product tank meetups. I'm sure there are others who unfortunately I've left out. As for me, after a significant tour of duty with Zero, I joined a digital human platform startup Unique. But since then, and for the last five months, I've been coaching and advising the next generation of New Zealand SaaS companies to help product leaders there do their best work and help their teams improve. However, I'm excited to share that I'll soon be joining the team at Movin as CTO in an effort to try to reduce the time that we all spend in traffic when significant infrastructure projects are happening in our communities. This has been 6.4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings from Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.